And that's what the crucible or melting pot model was never really able to accommodate because the idea, at least originally, was that everyone would get melted down. That's the the melting pot part. And then poured into a mold. And the mold would be the same for for everyone. But what what happened in the 20th century and what I think happens uh, today is that, uh, yes, there is a process of of melting and erosion of, of difference. But what emerges from that process is not exactly the same from what went uh, what went before. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode of Acton Line, Eric Cohn, our director of marketing and communications, sits down with Samuel Goldman, associate professor of political science at George Washington University, to discuss the history of our American national identity as explored in his new book, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. Goldman lays out the history of American national identity and offers new inspiration for how we can live together despite our current polarization and division. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Samuel Goldman is executive director of the John L. Loeb Jr. Institute for Religious Freedom and director of the Politics and Values Program at George Washington University. His first book, God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. His second book, After Nationalism, which we'll be discussing today, was published from the University of Pennsylvania Press in early 2021. In addition to his academic research, Goldman is literary editor of Modern Age, a conservative quarterly, and a contributing editor at The American Conservative. His writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Samuel Goldman, welcome to Acton Line. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with the question that I've, my audience knows that I've uh, cribbed from Jonah Goldberg's podcast. Uh, for every author, the question they want to be asked is, what is your book about? So uh, my book is about uh, the history of American national identity. Um, and what I do is challenge the idea that until the day before yesterday, uh, Americans overwhelmingly agreed on who uh, was an American and what that meant. And what I, what I try to show is that uh, the question of what it means to be American is an inescapable and recurring question in American history. Um, and in reflecting on some of the debates of the past, I hope that we may find inspiration for living together under the conditions of polarization and fracture that seem to characterize our time. So how do you define nationals? I know you just spoke here at Acton at our Acton lecture series, and one of the points that you made is about how much time is expended uh, debating over differing definitions of nationalism rather than talking about what those definitions are pointing to. Uh, so how do you define nationalism? And particularly, because um, th this is how it always to me comes up mostly in the American context for people who want to, you know, if we want to condense those nationalism definitions together for a moment, and you get the differentiation made between nationalism and patriotism. How do you, A, define nationalism and B, separate separate it out from a concept of patriotism? Yeah, so I, I follow uh, scholars um, who suggest that what really defines nationalism um, is the principle of political ethnicity. Uh, that a people is constituted at least partly by common descent but also by shared language, uh, religion and also cultural uh, features and that it stands outside political uh, institutions, that, that governments answer 
to the people which is itself transhistorical. It existed in the past and will continue to exist uh, in the future. And I think that that kind of nationalism is really just not a good fit uh, for this country, even if it may make more sense uh, for other people in other places. Patriotism, by contrast, uh, I understand as a loyalty to institutions which have a history, which have boundaries and which are associated with particular uh, cultural and other experiences um, but don't exist independently of actual participation. So what makes us Americans, I suggest, is participating in American life and in uh, American politics, um, not origin or uh, membership in smaller religious or linguistic uh, communities. So defining the term you use, the pol- political ethnicity, and in America, does this just get more complicated because of the nature of the founding of the country, the way that it was primarily people coming from a bunch of different places, rather than if you're looking at um, European nations who can trace uh, the ethnic heritage of it all the way back through decades and decades and centuries and centuries. Um, it, it does defining us in, in a nationalistic sense just become you know very difficult because of our unique history? It's it's difficult but not impossible. Uh, And a lot of the way Americans have responded to that question sort of depends on their historical perspective. So we now look back on the 18th century and we say, um, okay, the the citizens of uh, the United States in the founding period and and early republic were um, overwhelmingly um, British, although not necessarily English. Probably a majority, but not such an overwhelming majority of of English descent uh, Protestants. Now, there's a problem with that, which is that even that definition excludes two major groups, uh, Native Americans, Indians, as they were called for most of our our history, um, and African Americans, uh, the descendants of uh, enslaved, enslaved people. So even there, there's a problem. But even within that category, there's more diversity and pluralism than we tend to recognize. So in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, um, Protestants or seems like a, a coherent, stable category. But the disagreements among uh, different Protestant sects in the 18th century were hardly less intense than disagreements between uh, Protestants and Catholics or even Christians and non-Christians uh, today. And that has always made it very, very difficult um, to define American identity in ethnic or religious terms. That led in the 19th century uh, to a sort of shift in historical focus from the past to the future. And what Americans began to argue was, okay, so uh, we have these these various origins, we come from uh, different places, but that's actually not so different from Europe. You know, uh, the French are not all descendants from descendants of the Franks. There are also the Burgundians and the Bretons and the Basques. But over time, we will become one people as all of these characteristics are fused together and melted down into a seamless alloy. This is the the famous image of the the crucible um, or melting pot. And in the 19th century, that became um, the dominant image or metaphor of American national identity. replacing or displacing, if not entirely eliminating, um, older appeals to a specifically Anglo-Protestant heritage. And even there, there's some regional variation. Um, In uh, New England and in upper-class circles, the the old ideal of Anglo-Protestant America survived a lot longer and was much more powerful um, than in other locations and and milieu. But 
that ideal or image of the crucible itself broke down as it became clear in the late 19th century and early 20th century that the differences that people brought with them from their places of origin were not simply disappearing. They didn't remain entirely the same, uh, but the demand for 100 percent Americanism, uh, as, as it was called, um, was not successful and it, it became clear that people did want to retain some sense of ethnic or cultural or religious, uh, religious identity. How much of that is really uh – kind of diluted over time, though. I've, I've heard the argument from um, Brian Kaplan uh, at George Mason University that, you know, you, you have first-generation immigrants to this country, the ones who come here from somewhere else, who do, you know, kind of distinctly want to maintain parts of that heritage. But as he puts it, you know, it's like you have, uh, you know, a Romanian family that comes here, and it's the children where it's like you never hear them complaining that, you know, oh, my kids, all they want to do is, you know, uh, speak uh, in the Romanian language and, and listen to Romanian music and read Romanian literature, they adopt the culture of the country that they have come to. How much of that dilutes then over time uh, and what effect does that have on this? There is a clear generational generational component and that's the classic sort of three-generation pattern often observed with regard to language in particular. So uh, first-generation immigrants, especially adults, speak primarily their language of origin and may struggle really to learn even minimal uh, English. Um, uh, Their children tend to be bilingual. Their grandchildren speak very little, if any, uh, of their their original language. So there's, there's a clear generational quality. What didn't happen though um, was the adaptation of those people to a pre-existing model of what it meant to be American. So they they assimilated in the way that you're describing but they also changed what they were assimilating into and what we now think of as the golden age of American popular culture that defines America for so many of us, uh, Hollywood, uh, uh, jazz and other popular popular music um, was introduced by people who were on the one hand moving away from some of these ancestral or original identities but also changing what they were moving uh, what they were moving into um, and that's what the crucible or melting pot model was never really able to accommodate because the idea at least originally was that everyone would get melted down, that's the the melting pot part, and then poured into a mold. And the mold would be the same for for everyone. But what what happened in the 20th century and what I think happens uh, today is that uh, yes, there is a process of of melting and erosion of of difference, but what emerges from that process is not exactly the same from what uh, what went before. Um, and I think on the whole, that is a healthy and rewarding process, which doesn't mean that it's without problems or, or disadvantages. Um, and that's what I try to emphasize in, um, in the book that, again, it's not that until the day before yesterday, um, everyone was the same and agreed on, on everything. These, these debates and transformations and, and adaptations are – a perennial theme of American life. How does this evolution of a nationalistic understanding of America compare to other nations? I mean, so often when we talk, especially about European countries in a in the concept of nationalism, you know, we think of uh, blood and soil thrown an altar kind of stuff, which really, for a lot of the reasons that you laid out, really does not apply to America. There's no way to really make it apply to America, given the predominant immigrant history of the country. Um, have those other nations gone through kind of similar evolutions, or is this something more unique to this country, just given the history, the background of it? They've certainly gone through these evolutions to some degree Um, and although I don't talk about it in in the book because I really want to focus on the American case, I I do think it's worth reminding Americans that many of the European nation states are younger than the United States. 
Germany and Italy are, are the most prominent examples. So we, we think of these as nations that have this continuous history extending back into um, uh, ancient ancient times, but at least as political entities, they are really very recent um, and their establishment involved enormous transformations of local and regional cultures um, and Italy is particularly uh, interesting in this in this example um, because there are still huge regional variations in Italy and it's only within living memory that the majority uh, of Italians have, have have spoken standard Italian uh, rather than um, local and regional dialects as their as their primary languages so this is not a uniquely American process, but it is a distinctively American process, um, and I think that's true for um, for at least two reasons. Um, one, as we've been discussing, is that it involves um, the introduction and assimilation, but also uh, the influence of immigrants, rather than. Um, regional cultures. So in, in the case of Germany and Italy, um, there were movements of national unification to bring together all of these smaller and often somewhat distinct uh, states um, and, and regions into a, a single country. But the people had more or less always been there. It was the borders that changed, um, not the, the inhabitants. In America, it's different. Uh, the borders have changed and Western expansion is an important part uh, of this story but also the people have changed as more and more have come um, both uh, voluntarily and against um, and against their their will. So that is again um, distinctively if not uniquely American and one of the things that um, visitors from Europe and other places often marvel at is that you can become an American. I mean that's still a, a very, very difficult idea um, for many European and other foreigners to, to understand. Not just that you can live uh, here and become a citizen but that you can become an American and can do so relatively quickly um, with relatively small if not altogether insignificant uh, changes. Well, in, in a way that you could immigrate to France and you could become a citizen of the country and you could live there and still not be thought of as a Frenchman. Um, but you can certainly, you know, and it's, it, there's almost, uh, I think this is another part, we talk a, a lot about the, that unique history of America, um, the desire of people to come to America to be Americans, to adopt something, um, to claim, to put a claim to something, to a history, to a legacy that is not based in a well, and the reason that you, I, I presume you would get the objection to, you know, me having been born just outside of um, on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River from St. Louis, moving to Paris, um, becoming a Frenchman. I can't trace any lineage back in that country, um, which is just far more a part of the national character there than it is or really I think could be here in America. And, and France is an interesting comparison because I think it illustrates um, a, a, a second difference. So France more than most, maybe more than any uh, other major European country really is um, a, a country formed um, by immigration. Um, uh, Mostly from other parts uh, of Europe, but you see this even if you if you look at the names um, of prominent uh, uh, French cultural and political figures. Um, the the longtime mayor of Paris is named Hidalgo. Hidalgo. It's a Spanish name. Um, or uh, the the late actor Jean Paul Belmondo, um, who I, I think was of det Italian descent. So this is this is a, this is not so different to America, but. France has a history of hierarchical cultural institutions that enforce, quite literally enforce, a very, very specific stable uh, and stable idea of what it means to be French and the things you have to read and the things you have to know and the way you have to speak in order to be fully French. American culture just doesn't work like that. 
Uh, yes, there are pressures for assimilation that are very powerful and often very successful, but they are more disaggregated and more demotic, more sort of popular. Um, and being American is really not so much something you learn in school because the teacher told you how to do it. it it's something that generations of, of uh, Americans have picked up from television and radio and newspaper and, and movies. And all of those media have been susceptible to exactly these influences that we've been discussing um, much more uh, than the hierarchical French model of formal directed uh, assimilation. So, you know, in, in, uh, in France, in many European countries, they have a ministry of culture, um, the purpose of which is to define and enforce, sometimes coercively by law, um, the, the meaning of, of national identity. Um, we don't have that in America and I think that is a, a, great, a great advantage. We are better off, not worse off uh, because of the absence of an American ministry of culture and the cultural developments that have really defined America and that have proved attractive to people from all around the world who, who find themselves here have not come from the top down um, as part of an official effort as assimilation. Um, they have tended to emerge from the bottom up through unplanned and unforced interactions. I can only imagine the laughter that would be produced by even the suggestion that we should have some kind of an American ministry of culture. Um, it just it doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that would uh, mesh well with the American culture that it would have to then be representing. That you know, the I've used this example on this on this podcast before about um, I, I can never remember the uh, the political scientist or the sociologist who I got it from. Um, but the you know, at the time of the revolution, you have essentially the same you know stock of people who've come here, as you pointed out, you know, largely from England, but you know, from certainly British, um, and the ones who are loyalists or royalists um, around the time and after the revolution either go to or stay in Canada, and the ones who are interested in the American experiment who are part of that um, stay in the United States. And you fast forward two hundred years, and at the same time. Canada and the United States both decide that they're going to switch to the metric system. And the Canadians say, okay, and they have meters and, and kilometers up there. And the United States just kind of says, no, we're not. We're, we're just going to stick with, in a way, being completely different in all those measurements from the rest of the world doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But there's something inherent in the American character and culture there that just says, no, we're not going to do what you're telling us to do just because you're telling us to do it. Yeah, and, and this, this gets at um, one of my criticisms, which may be one of the things that you had wanted to talk about, um, of the sort of revival of nationalism as, as a, a political theory over the last five or so uh, five or so years. Um, and part of my, my criticism um, of those efforts is that they often seem weirdly un-American in, in these sense, not, not in, in, in their appeal um, to the, the sovereignty of the, of the people or to the national interest. These are, these are all uh, important and recurring, in, recurring themes, um, but rather uh, the, the implication that there is a fixed American sort of ca cultural canon um, that can and should be uh, imposed. And they're not the first people to think that. Um, the the uh, public schools as we know them have their origins partly uh, in, in that instinct. Um, I just don't think those efforts have ever worked particularly well and there's something a little bit incongruous um, about borrowing these foreign models rather than turning to – domestic inspirations and examples. Well, I think there's with with a lot of the conversation in the last 5 or 6 years about nationalism to me 
it's happening at two levels, right? So you, you have the text of the conversation and the context of the conversation. And you can read through Yoram Hazoni's book on nationalism. You can read through the essay that Rich Lowry and Ramesh Panuru wrote at National Review that turned into Rich Lowry's book on nationalism. Um, and there are some interesting things in there. Uh, there's, you know, there are parts that I agree with. There are parts that I disagree with. Um, and then there's the context of the conversation, which is, well, why are we even talking about nationalism in an American context? And to me, it is largely because um, of Donald Trump, because Trump picks up this term much in the same way that he picked up America first. It's not because he had a deep understanding of the America first movement going back to the early, uh, you know, early 1900s. Um, it's because he liked the way that it sounded uh, and he wanted to create a brand differentiation. I mean, Donald Trump's true genius is in the is in my field, is in the field of marketing. Um, and he wanted to create a brand differentiation between the kind of American conservatism that had been talked about by so many Republican candidates and him and what he wanted to do and he liked the sound of nationalism. So we have to me that you can read all of those people and all the writings that they have, uh, all the pixels and ink that has been spilled on this and have a completely interesting conversation about it. But to me, it's missing so much of the point because the only reason we're talking about it is because what I read as a desire to either, depending on the person, uh, very actively or just somewhat passively say that, oh, this new direction for the American right is something that's totally fine and totally cool and completely congruous with uh, the history of the American right and people shouldn't be so freaked out about it when a lot of people were seemingly freaked out about it. Because you think of nationalism typically to the average American, I think they think of really nasty stuff that happened in Europe and wanting to put a separation between those things. Yeah, I think I think that that's largely um, accurate. Although, of course, it wasn't it wasn't only Trump or Trump was was only an American version uh, of of a phenomenon that's more widespread and includes Brexit and and other recent events or other events around the same time um, as examples. Um, but I think again that there is a difference between the American and European situations that doesn't always appear in these discussions of nationalism as a general concept. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book only about uh, America. In Europe, uh, through the EU, there is a genuine legal challenge to national sovereignty. And it is an open question. Who is going to make fundamental decisions about the extent of juridical rights uh, via the, the European uh, uh, Charter of Human Rights, um, about uh, spending policies and, and monetary policies, um, and increasingly about cultural issues? And in that sense, I think the appeal to nationalism is perfectly coherent. It's, it's, it's an answer to the question, who decides? And in the European context, it's an argument that the citizens of the EU's member states should decide rather uh, than um, the EU, which is itself a very Byzantine and opaque uh, uh, organization. In America, to me, that makes much less sense because for all of the problems we have, and I should say that I, I agree with many of the people who have made cases for nationalism about what those problems are and even some of the solutions they, they propose. But I don't think this question of sovereignty is at issue um, in the same way. Um, yes, the United States is a participant in various transnational institutions, um, but as still, despite relative decline, the most powerful state in the world, we mostly get from those institutions what we want. And we certainly don't face the imposition of legal and political outcomes in the way that European states do. So whereas in Europe, there, there is um, this dimension to nationalism that involves genuine and important disputes about sovereignty. In America, it seems to be much more about cultural cohesion um, and, and stability. And it's, it's that sense of nationalism that I wanted to challenge a bit in this book. Well, this, I think, is, gets us back to the definitional mess of talking about nationalism, because as I read Hazoni's book in particular, um, you know, I, 
at least what I think of when I think of nationalism, isn't really what I hear him talking about. It's more what you were just speaking of there, which is the concept of the nation state and that, you know, the nation state is the ideal building block for the entire world as opposed to uh, transnational or global structures, transnational like the EU or global structures, uh, institutions like the United Nations, which is a point that I agree with entirely. But it's not what I think of when I think of nationalism. And I can understand it as you explain it there in the context of Europe, how, you know, a, a Germany, a France, a Spain may think of nationalism vis-a-vis the, you know, the impositions that are coming from the European Union. But it's, it's almost like we're trying to like flatten all of these distinctions of types of nationalism where all these different things are being you know shoved into one single word and it just gets so incredibly confusing to talk about I, I, I agree and that's why despite the title which is intended to be a little bit provocative um, and and as to, all good titles are as all good titles are um, and to uh, encourage people to buy and, and read the book I don't spend a lot of time talking about the ideology or theory of nationalism because it's 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 so broad and can mean so many different things. I, I try to get concrete uh, and specific about what at least some Americans, and it's a short book, it's not comprehensive, um, have meant when they've talked about the American nation or the American people. You talked about American culture and how important that is to this conversation and how a lot of the uh, particularly American conversations about nationalism, the critiques that are being leveled uh, about the current state of the country through these conversations about nationalism. I'm, you know, as I think about it, there's a couple things running through my head that we have this we get this in our political rhetoric every once in a while this seeming the suggestion of like there's this platonic idea of what it means to be an american uh, that's something that everybody can adopt and agree to and like there's a foundational level at at which i think that that makes sense but you know the Anybody who has been um, across this country just knows how completely culturally different it is. It is, you know, just so many different microcultures that exist in different states and states are completely different than other states and counties are different than other counties. Um, And you get this talk about this, uh, about the real America. And when you hear people say that it's almost always, you know, it's hardly ever in reference to San Francisco being the real America or Chicago being the real America. It's this, you know, rural, like Kevin Williamson, I remember him telling the story of, um, because he was friendly with uh, Glenn Beck. And for Glenn Beck's first book entitled The Real America, was like asking, like, you know, where can I find like, you know, a barn to stand in front of is like, very little of the country is actually farmers anymore. Um, so this is this, this idea of this real America. Um, how, how should we think about what it means to be an American? Um, how do we get that simple foundational level, which there does seem to be disagreement about in this country right now, while also being accepting of you know, people who want to live in San Francisco are going to want to live differently in a cultural way than people who live here in Grand Rapids, Michigan? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I admit that the the rhetoric of the real America or um, uh, the you know the heartland, there are various synonyms here, um, gives me the creeps because the suggestion is that. Um, people who live in other places or other ways are not real Americans. And I simply don't think that's true either politically or or morally um, or even historically. Um, and this is the kind of thing social scientists like to do, you know, to, to calculate the, the statistically median American. Um, where does this person live? How much does this person earn? What kind of house does this person live in? The statistically median American lives in in a major metro area in a suburb um, that probably looks a lot like the places that the other median Americans uh, live. It's 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 not um, the sort of ideal of of rural self sufficiency or or even um, the more recent ideal of the sturdy working class. You know, going down to um, going down to the mill. So I think we need a way to say that it's 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 all. America um, and that 
that that's wonderful. I mean, this is this is a big, beautiful country filled with wonderful places, and I would like to see them less similar in many ways than more similar. I think the ways in which they're getting more similar also tend to make them much less interesting um, and um, and appealing. So what then can connect them? I think that's a fair question. And for me, um, the the answer has to come through a revitalization of the concept of, of citizenship. Um, and one of the areas in which I agree with some of people, the people who've made a, a theoretical case for for nationalism, um, is that both explicit arguments and unintentional trends in in 21st century life tend to erode the category of citizenship. Um, and although they worry that the, they think the problem with immigration is that it's 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 culturally subversive, I, I actually don't think that's true. I, I agree with them um, that uh, an arbitrary and porous uh, immigration system in which no one really knows who gets in or who doesn't and why, and there's not a clear distinction between the protections and privileges of those who have committed to uh, membership in the American political community and those who haven't, I, I agree that that's, that that's a problem. Um, so uh, I, I think that we should emphasize the category of citizenship, not only as, as a legal status, but active citizenship and, and participation um, as a basis for, uh, for shared identity. When you said as things are becoming less similar, they're getting less interesting, and my mind immediately goes to New York City, which you know, I love. My uh, father and my brothers are from New York, and I think you can over time, especially if you would say start in you know, the 1970s, late 70s is when my dad moved from uh, New York to St. Louis. Uh, New York was not a you know, unless you had a lot of money and could avoid it, not the most pleasant place to live. Um, you know, it's plenty of stories you can find about. You look at all the movies that were made about New York City. It was in the great. 1970s. It was great for movies. It was great Bad for, for people. The content but, was right. fantastic, right? <laughs> um, you know, you Death Wish and Panic in Needle Park and like uh, you know, all all that kind of setting, and. It is certainly homogenized, uh, certainly through the 80s into the 1990s, especially during the 1990s, where Times Square goes from being very seedy and porno theaters, uh, a red light district, essentially, to being owned by Disney and a handful of other corporations, where now it's perfectly fine uh, to walk through, getting maybe, less so. Maybe not so much Getting anymore. less so at the moment. Um, and this is one of I think you'd mentioned something about this in your ALS talk about cycles that these, you know, that maybe as a nation we go through, but I, I think about it in terms of cities, too. Um, having just moved to Grand Rapids from Chicago, Chicago certainly seems to be going through a, a cycle where it is getting worse. But I think it, it is, to me, also in New York coincides with the homogenization of the culture there, where there used to be just so much, you know, that bizarre diversity that you would get in a city like New York and not see anywhere else. And, you know, the joke now is that, you know, if you're downtown, if you're, if you're in midtown Manhattan, um, you, you go to the Olive Garden because we do so many things ironically now. But that kind of stands out as a New York City was the city you think of Little Italy and, and Billy Joel scenes from an Italian restaurant and you get that authentic Italian meal. And now it's Olive Garden in the middle of downtown. Um, it's interesting the way that uh, as the some of the problems in New York went away, the homogenization also seemed to happen along with it. Yeah. I mean, I would like to think and, and maybe it's optimistic or even naive to think so um, that you can you can have a distinctive culture without uh, chaos and 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 mayhem um, and 20 years before the period uh, we're we are talking about um, New York was much safer but also quite quite distinctive um, so I, I I hope that's not the choice that we face although sometimes um, Sometimes we don't we don't get to choose in the way that that we would um, that that we would like, but it, it's it's certainly true um, that safety and affluence um, have encouraged a sort of homogenized national and to some extent global uh, culture that um, we we agree is 
less interesting and less appealing than regional and ethnic and religious identities that are more that are more specific and distinctive. To bring it back closer to our conversation where we started, the yeah, how much of it is wrapped up in the, and I mean the true understanding of this term when I use it, of American exceptionalism. That, you know, we it, it's another one of these things that suffers from definitional problems. You hear American exceptionalism and you think of like, you know, a teacher patting you on the head and saying you're exceptional. But what it really meant is, you know, just that Americans are different. And one of those differences is that we are a more violent culture than most other cultures. So I take your point entirely that you can go back to, you know, the 1950s and not have the problems of New York in the 70s and still have that uh, uniqueness. But you wonder the, the just that American exceptionalist element that just for whatever reason, we are a more violent culture and how that feeds in and into all of this. Well, that leads to, to another interesting conversation. You'll have to have me back uh, sometime um, about how some of the things we think of as exceptional about America are really fairly common in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and some critics uh, of my book, friendly critics, I, I should say, have, have pointed out um, that many of the characteristics I, I uh, have, have described um, are shared with other North and South American societies uh, that trace their beginnings to a European colonial experience um, uh, that often um, involved a, a revolution or war uh, of national liberation and that remained distinctive in many of the same ways, more religious, uh, more, more violent, um, less inclined to social solidarity uh, than, than European countries um, and so on. Um, and I, I, t I, I, take, I take that point. But even, even so, uh, I, I really do think that there is a purely descriptive element of American exceptionalism um, that too easily gets lost. This is, this is not France. This is not uh, Italy. Um, this is not Germany and certainly it's not, um, it's not Denmark. And just as there, there was and is a, a genuine risk of distorting non-American states societies and cultures by trying to make them too much like America. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's been happening in Europe, that there's a sort of this, this national react, reaction against. We shouldn't make the opposite mistake um, and treat America as if it really were no different um, to states and societies that are genuinely more cohesive and more coherent uh, than ours. Your book in a, uh, is addressing nationalism within this context of our current time where we have this division and polarization. What, what role do you think that um, media and in particular social media plays in all of that? I mean, are we, you know, I, I wonder this sometimes of, you know, how how much more divided are we really that we are just so much more aware of the divisions between us because of the rapidity of information, um, you know, the ability to see something particularly strange that's happening in San Francisco if you're living here in Michigan and to have this feeling like it's in your backyard, even though it is thousands of miles away from you. Um, are, you know, are we... There's also this phenomenon of as societies become more egalitarian, they become less tolerant of the small differences between them. Um, so even though I think there are market differences between different places in this country, um, but to me, I wonder how much the that kind of backyard feeling of social media puts those differences so right in our face in a way that was impossible before it's – not impossible, but um, just less common and less immediate before its advent that it exacerbates these problems. Um, so maybe we're, you know, we're not – it is much disagreement as we think we are. It is just in our face more often. I think there's almost there's almost certainly um, truth to that, and and I've toyed with the idea, which has also been uh, suggested by other people, um, that that what we need is sort of a social media 
temperance movement, um, taking inspiration from the the temperance movements of uh, the 19th century that sought to address a, a genuine social problem of alcohol abuse. And we often forget how serious that, that problem was at the time um, through not simply individual restraint, um, but through uh, communal organization and and institution building. Tocqueville talks about this. Um, he, he had heard of the temperance movement before coming to America um, and he was – as a Frenchman, he was shocked by it. You know, how could, how could people not, not want to drink uh, wine with, with their meals? Um, but beyond that, he was confused by uh, the communal aspect. He, he has a line in Democracy in America um, or maybe it's one of his letters. He says, you know, why, why – I wondered – why they could not drink water in the privacy of their own of their own homes but the answer is that it's very hard to regulate your own behavior um, purely by yourself especially when confronted with powerful temptations like alcohol or, or social media. You need to do it with others. And um, I would not go so far as prohibition. Um, I'm more sympathetic to the, the early um, temperance advocates who thought you should only drink beer and wine. You just you know, stay away from, from the hard stuff. Similarly, I think we would benefit from a movement to stay away from um, the, the hard stuff of, of social media. That said, social media ha have great risks but also great advantages. Um, and I think many, if not all of us, um, have had significant and rewarding encounters on social media, meeting friends, sharing information, maybe even organizing for some of these common purposes. Um, by contrast, cable news has no redeeming features whatsoever. So if I were going to go uh, full prohibition on, on something, um, it would be on, on TV rather than on Twitter. Let's close with two final questions. Um, the first, so the title of your book is After Nationalism. Um, where is the after part coming from? So we're having such a, as you said, as we've discussed, as we're discussing here today, um, this conversation that's been renewed about nationalism. Um, so you mentioned the title being provocative. Um, what what are we pointing to with the title? Yeah, so I, I, when, I, when I talk about being after nationalism, I, I'm not saying that the issue is going to go away or that politicians or others uh, will cease, cease waving the flag or, or in um, uh, former President Trump's case, hugging the flag as, or kissing as we all yeah. – and kissing the flag as, as we all uh, remember. That, that will clearly continue and sometimes those politicians and parties and movements will be, um, will be successful. Rather, I'm, I'm playing on um, an idea articulated by the moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre of after virtue. Um, and when McIntyre talks about after virtue, he, he's not saying that you can't be virtuous anymore or even that you can't read Aristotle and understand what Aristotle was talking about. What he is saying is that it is very hard or impossible to imagine large-scale social consensus about the meaning of virtue. And one of the reasons I, I adopted that, that title is that he points out the reason that these moral debates seem endless is we don't mean the same things by the same words. And as we've been discussing, the same is true um, of, of nationalism. We're arguing about definitions often more than, um, more than the substance. So um, what, what I mean by a condition after nationalism um, is one in which we have to learn to live with an unaccustomed uh, level of disagreement, contention, and polarization. Uh, and what I try to show in the book, and maybe it's too clever, author, authors often get um, too clever, is that even though we, we assume that this is a new condition, it's really an old condition. Um, and I think one of the, the historical myths that um, we need to dispel or that I, I try to help um, dispel that would be reassuring in certain ways is that the America of 1960 was the normal condition. Uh, when in fact, I think it was, it was, it was a unique period 
um, of extremely high trust in institutions, social cohesion, and and cultural stability for all sorts of reasons that aren't going to be uh, repeated. So even when it comes to uh, the question of, of media, we look more like the America of 1900, when newspapers were openly partisan, sensationalistic, and published uh, an enormous amount of what we now call fake, fake news, then we look like uh, the America of 1960 when 40 million people tuned in to watch um, the network news broadcasts five nights a week. What does it mean to be an American and how should we think about what it means to be an American? We talked about this kind of baseline of, of American nationalism. Um, it, if we're trying to point it in the productive way again of, of how we conceive ourselves, um, what should we be thinking about in terms of what it means to be uh, American that I, I, I think ideally would point to the ways that we can uh, learn to live together with these problems that you've outlined? Well, I, I think of um, the uh, oath of naturalization um, that uh, – immigrants take in order to become citizens, which requires them to renounce allegiance um, to, to foreign uh, rulers and, and institutions and to affirm uh, the authority of, of the constitution. And that is legally what makes them uh, American. And I think that's a pretty good starting point. Um, if you can, if you can swear that oath in good faith, um, wherever uh, you were born, then you're American enough, uh, enough for me. And I, I, I hope that uh, that is sufficient, at least as a starting point, um, for a majority of our fellow citizens. Samuel Goldman, thank you so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Samuel Goldman is executive director of the John L. Loeb Jr. Institute for Religious Freedom and director of the Politics and Values Program at George Washington University. His 2021 book, After Nationalism, has been our topic of conversation today. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.